Hello and welcome to One Digital's COVID-19 Employer Advisory Podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to provide business leaders with the latest commentary on evolving business and economic news that impacts healthcare, business, and the workplace. In each episode, our One Digital advisors will be addressing evolving coronavirus situations, translating them for employers so they can be proactive for their organizations and develop their business planning strategies. Welcome to today's COVID-19 advisory session. My name is Allison Lantieri. I'm the Senior Vice President of Marketing and Customer Experience for One Digital. I'm also moderating today's discussion. The format of today's session will be a 30-minute conversation with three of our COVID-19 advisory leaders, followed by a Q&A. Now to our panelists. Please welcome VP Legal Counsel of HR Consulting, Jamie Webb Akasaka, VP of Client Strategy and Solutions, George Papagallis, and SVP of Regulatory Affairs and Reform Initiatives, Annette Bechtold. Also standing by for comment are Nancy Sapperstone, Regional Marketing Director and Senior HR Business Specialist, and Carrie Balicki, VP Client Services, Small Business. Today we'll cover three main areas related to the continually evolving coronavirus outbreak and touch upon federal developments, benefits program compliance and best practices, including actionable steps offered from three important perspectives. What can employers do today? What should they be considering in the near term? And what could be impacting decisions over the long term? Let's begin. We'll begin first with Annette. Can you tell us what the latest federal developments are that employees should be aware of right now? So I, I think there's a couple of things. Number one, the um, the House, as most people have seen, there's just so many, so much in the news coming forward. But the House has been is has passed just the second bill that appropriates monies for the government to do things. So that's part of the House's responsibility is to kind of guard the purse strings. And so every time money is spent, they need to appropriate that cash. So they're in their second series. This bill that was just passed on Saturday by the House would create some obligations for employers, but the purpose really is to appropriate the funds necessary to really support the overall healthcare community, employees, and employers. Okay, excellent. And what are the new employer responsibilities contained in that bill? So uh, there's a couple of things that it does, I think, that are most significant to employers. And uh, generally uh, impact most employers, although there are some caveats there, but the, the two main ones are that um, it creates an expansion to the, the Family Medical Leave Act that we know and love today that typically um, applies to those employers of 50 or more, but in this case, it would expand it for this period of time that would start at 30 days after enactment and it would allow um, that FMLA coverage or that family medical leave coverage to apply to any employer with fewer than 500 employees. Okay, excellent. Well, that would be one. I, I Let me just uh, add one more because it also expands or ma- uh, makes mandatory uh, employee, employer paid sick leave in the case of an emergency like this and specifically for COVID-19. Okay. Well, and one of the things I was going to say is that there's, you know, there's a lot of technical information that we're going to be sharing today. Um, Like I said, attendees will receive follow-up resources, but you can always continue to go to the advisory hub page where the compliance team is regularly updating that content with information like this. So um, can you talk to us a little bit about opposition? You know, is there opposition to what's happening and how are they managing that? You know, um, well, the House itself, you know, um, it pretty much passed it on a bipartisan measure. It actually passed like 363 to 40. So you've got a lot of support from um, from both chambers, actually. Um, now, the first version of the bill came out Saturday, but then they created a 90-page 90 90 page 
technical correction to the bill based on some feedback, et cetera, that did make modifications to it. And um, it's now uh, moving over to the Senate. The Senate should vote on it this afternoon. Every indication is that they probably will pass it. So I think the first version, there were a lot of questions. There are still some questions, but I think pretty much everybody's like, let's let's appropriate the cash and then let's work on this and make it as workable as possible, which I think is a, a great stand. Okay. And, and, I, and I believe the president will sign it as well. Okay, excellent, excellent to know. Well, so um, another one of the questions that we've been receiving on a regular basis is really based around medical services, including um, kind of administration and coverage for the COVID-19 test under health plans, uh, including high deductible health plans. George, can you give us some insight on that? Uh, sure, yes. Thanks, Allison. Uh, welcome, everybody. Uh, so this, this is one that came up pretty early in terms of a lot of questions, you know, how will the test be covered under the health plan, particularly a high deductible health plan. And so guidance over the last few days has been pretty clear. Um, for fully insured groups, uh, the government, the IRS in particular, um, relaxed uh, its definition of preventive services. And so for employers wanting to communicate to employees, the message is simply uh, the COVID-19 uh, test will be covered under the plan at no cost to the employee. And similarly, uh, the, um, the cost of the COVID-19 test will be covered at no cost under the high deductible health plan, not limiting any sort of qualifying tax advantages that go along with those plans. I will make one point though, um, for self-insured groups who may be on the phone, the general guidance is for those uh, health plan sponsors to do the same thing and cover those services at 100% under the plan. But you as an employer and the health plan sponsor do have the opportunity to opt out of that. Generally speaking, we haven't seen anybody do that to date, but I just want to make that distinct point between uh, what the carriers are doing on a fully insured basis and what they're allowing for self-insured employers. Okay, excellent. And then what would you advise uh, individuals do if they're current customers as far as, you know, getting more, maybe more specific information about HSA contributions um, covered by HD, HDHPs, you know, where should they be looking for their guidance? Sure, great question. Um, so I think in general, the, 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 the action step here is really just to make sure that you're working with your benefits consultant and your carrier, each of the carriers has been very good at sending out information with specific details and how this is covered. So as long as you're uh, touching base with those two um, stakeholders and communicating those um, or that information to your employees, um, that would be the best uh, course of action to take relative to employees. Okay, excellent. Thank you. Let's move now to uh, an organization's leave policies, including family medical leave, and how does that apply to various scenarios associated with COVID-19? Yeah, so um, this is another common question that we've been getting, and I, and I will just caveat what I say um, to what Annette just said relative to the bill that passed the House. So there are some provisions in that bill that could impact this, but as of right now, there really aren't a lot of major changes to the way that FMLA is handled either on the state level or the federal level. Um, a, quarantine, a quarantine in and of itself does not necessarily equal a leave. So if somebody's just home because they feel like they shouldn't be at work, that doesn't necessarily lie, uh, rise to the level uh, of eligibility uh, for FMLA. Um, however, if somebody uh, is infected with the, the, the COVID virus and, um, and there's documentation to, to prove that and they're quarantined as a result of that, or if somebody in their family uh, is infected with the disease and um, that person is home, those incidences could potentially rise to the level of an FMLA type situation. But again, there'll be more on that as this House bill passes the Senate and ultimately to the president, potentially. Okay. Well, and then what about, you know, whether or not it's classified as a disabling condition? Um, how might that affect short-term disability? Sure. Yeah. So the logical extension is how does this affect our definition of disability? So similarly, there haven't been a lot of changes um, currently. Um, there could be if, this, if these bills are passed. But right now, all the carriers have essentially taken uh, the same um, position on this. Um, a simply being quarantined at home um, or self-quarantined at home does not rise to the level of a disability, and most likely that would not qualify uh, for benefits. However, 
if somebody is uh, truly infected with the COVID virus in their home and they're unable to um, perform their normal work duties, that, that may and probably will rise to the level of a disability and that person would be able to receive benefits. So it really is going to come down to, is the person uh, truly sick and infected with the disease um, and are they not able to perform their normal functions of their job because you know they've been sent home uh, and they can't do their job remotely. So that that is sort of the uh, the difference between um, getting benefits under disability or not getting benefits under disability. You know, another um, option in there too. I was just going to add to what George was saying was that there's a provision in a lot of those policies too that you have to be actively at work in order to be eligible if you become disabled. So let's say somebody is quarantined because they are, are exposed, but they're not actually disabled at that moment, or they're not able to work how does that affect their ability to be eligible for the policy? And so we're seeing a lot of carriers handle that specific provision very differently. Some are relaxing that standard, others are not. So again, back to what George says, it's really important to check with your carrier and how that plan uh, language and how the plan provisions are being administered. And to that point, yeah, just, I, just Allison, Allison, yeah. just real quick, in terms of an action item, because I know we want to kind of give action items here for, for folks to follow. It really is basically work with your benefits consultant, work with your carrier, because each carrier is slightly different, but most have taken the same position on leave and on uh, short-term disability. Uh, they're providing communications on a regular basis. So to the extent you can get that information and simply share it with employees is really the best course of action right now pending um, some of this legislation that's passing through the, the House and Senate. Okay, makes sense. The next question I'm going to throw to both George and to Jamie as it's related to COBRA, which we are receiving many questions about, right? So the, the question here is, if a business lead needs to lay off or furlough employees for a period to alleviate, let's say, financial pressure uh, and to remain in business, can they continue the health and welfare benefits as active employees versus COBRA? So, he, so here's what I'll, I'll take the easy part of this uh, response, and then I'll let Jamie handle the more difficult part. Um, and and this, this is very similar for me anyway to the 2008 financial crisis because this situation came up quite a bit then. Uh, it's amazing that, you know, I guess 10 or 11 years has passed since then, and we're, we're now starting to talk about these layoff, furlough type situations. So the simple answer to the question, and we're starting to see it already, is maybe. Uh, it really kind of depends on a lot of different situations at the state level, et cetera. But I will tell you, just as a, just as a um, kind of a, a data point, I'm in Connecticut, and I was doing some research before the call, and as it, as it relates to furloughs in particular and unemployment opportunities, the state of Connecticut had an average of 3,000 uh, unemployment claims per week um, up until a couple of weeks ago. Um, and over the last week, they've had 30,000 uh, unemployment claims. So uh, I think, Jamie, I'll hand it off to you. Maybe you can kind of speak to the difference between, you know, temporary layoffs versus furloughs and maybe the impact of furloughs with unemployment benefits. Yeah, sure. So basically, you know, we want to make sure we're understanding the terminology that we're using uh, because they do refer to different things. So if you're engaging in a furlough, those uh, people that are placed on furlough still remain your employees, though they may be put off work for a specific period of time, say for like 30 days or something like that. Uh, if you're going to be laying off people, those people are actually going to be terminated from your organization. Um, and depending on the rules you set around it, you may allow them to be considered for rehire, maybe when things get ramped up later. If you're conducting like a reduction in force, Typically, that is involved where maybe you're actually eliminating positions. But I know a lot of these terms are, <clears throat> excuse me, thrown around kind of a bit because maybe we don't fully understand all the nuance, but they can be significant. So, for example, if you are placing people on furlough, um, it is uh, possible that you may be able to continue their uh, benefits for something like that, but that's something that's going to depend on your plan that you would want to communicate with uh, your plan provider and your benefits consultant to determine what rules would apply specifically in your instance. Um, obviously, if somebody's being let go from your organization, uh, they would be placed in a COBRA situation. Um, and to add to your uh, point 
George, as well, uh, for people that are on um, furloughs or maybe reductions in time, they are um, actually usually are going to be eligible for some type of unemployment benefit during that period. So that's another thing to consider. Um, even if there is, you know, aside from the usual reason of just being uh, let go from your position, that if there is a significant reduction in hours or furlough, that states are uh, allowing people to receive unemployment benefits in those situations. Thank yeah, you. Just, and just, and to close, just, just to close that, Allison, real quick, just in the key, I think the key terminology for folks to look at in their policies is the actively at work provision. Again, that's going to sort of tie back to furlough, temporary leaves, et cetera. And, and again, I already know the carriers are take, taking slightly different approaches on this. So, um, for example, recently we found out that Cigna has said actively at work may actually include furlough and some level of temporary layoff, whereas Anthem's taken a different approach where they're saying furlough could be an actively at work situation, but a layoff might not. So again, it's gonna come back to really working very closely with your benefits consultant and your carrier, um, just helping you to sort of talk through or work through those provisions to make sure that um, you know, what you wanna do ultimately with your employees is, is, is you know, kind of kosher from a legal perspective. Annette, anything to add there? Um, I think just taking on to what Jamie and George are, are saying, um, first and foremost is to then not only check the carrier, but make sure that that matches all of your other plan documents, that you've defined things and defined those terms in the same way you, know, you don't have a discrepancy. And then secondarily, then you're going to to make sure looking at your, you know, the size of, of your group, whether or not you have obligations then to offer COBRA due to a reduction of hours because they are still your employees as in a furlough or your, you know, or, or because they're terminated and then understand, you know, when do those things terminate and when does early termination happen, et cetera, or whether state continuation will apply. So those things I think are, are the pieces that I, that I would recommend. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. So Jamie, for an employer who really does have to consider, you know, maybe a more aggressive way to um, reduce the cost to business, what are some things they could think about? What are some tools they could use today to address that? So, you know, there's different strategies to think about in any type of uh, a situation where there might be a, some kind of financial downturn or effect to your business. Obviously, first and foremost, to the extent that you can cut unnecessary costs, that's always the, the first line of defense, right? So taking a look at uh, your finances and what really is essential versus what isn't. Um, another thing to consider, uh, we're seeing employers reduce schedules for their employees. So it's not a requirement to work that everybody has to work 40 hours a week or eight hours in a day. You can definitely reduce schedules in order to still allow them to uh, obtain some level of pay and still help you keep your business going. Now, depending on how much you cut their time, uh, that may affect their benefits eligibility. So you're gonna definitely wanna review with your benefits and HR consultants. Uh, what situation is going to work best for you if you're going to be reducing schedules. And then obviously you're going to want to limit or eliminate if possible all overtime because you're basically looking at time and a half. And if you're looking to reduce costs, you want to eliminate that potential. Another, so that, uh, go ahead, Annette. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, was that Jamie? Sorry. That's okay. Um, so another thing you're going to want to think about is reducing wages. Now, I know this can be painful for people, but certainly being able to still be employed uh, is helpful if this allows the business to continue and for people to remain employed. Um, the, the key things that you want to think about if you're considering reducing people's wages for a temporary period while um, everybody is, is managing through this situation is that for non-exempt employees, you wanna make sure that they're earning at least the applicable minimum wage uh, for your area. Uh, and then also for exempt employees, you'll wanna make sure that their salary is at least the uh, minimum salary necessary to meet the overtime exemption rules. 
Um, and that depends if your state follows the federal guidelines or if your state has their own uh, salary, minimum salary requirements to be overtime exempt. Uh, we did talk a little bit before about furloughs. Now, obviously, that's something uh, that you can do if you feel like, you know, you just maybe need 30 days to get through this period or to help you figure out what more you can do. Um, one thing that I will say there, when you're connecting furloughs or any other kind of reductions and layoffs, is to make sure that you're doing it in a non-discriminatory manner. Um, you know, if you're doing it across the board, then that's fine. If you're having to select certain people, you need to use criteria that is objective. Um, one thing that's very common is doing it based on seniority, right? So people that have been uh, last in, you know, most newly hired employees uh, are the ones that get let go first um, and then on up through your seniority process until, you know, uh, the people that have been there the longest. Um, another situation to think about when you're, if you need to conduct a re reduction of force, or uh, a layoff, again, keeping in mind those, uh, the non-discriminatory selection. Depending on your situation, you may need to provide advance notice of the layoff or reduction in force, and potentially even furloughs. Uh, that's something that you would want to review with your legal counsel. Uh, and those are based on the Warren Act. There's a federal Warren Act, and a lot, of, a lot of states have their own sort of mini Warren Acts, where if you have, under the federal version, if you have at least 100 employees and you're laying off uh, 50 or more, that you're required to provide 60 days advance notice. Uh, so that means, you know, everything is changing now and kind of coming at you and hitting hard. You should be looking at your finances now to have those projections in place to determine uh, you know, if what it's going to look like when you get to that point uh, where you may have to provide notice. Now, I will say something um, because local governments are taking significant actions right now. Certainly in the Bay Area in California, uh, yesterday in Orange County, California, there was an order that was issued, um, not a lockdown order, but um, basically saying that, you know, we're, uh, businesses need to telecommute as much as possible. Um, the governor, uh, excuse me, the uh, public works department in California said that um, certain businesses should not be operating like theaters and things like that. If, if you are faced with an actual order from a government entity um, to shut down your business or not operate because you were not considered an essential activity, um, there may be some ability for you to be able to waive those advance notice requirements. Uh, but again, that's something that you should definitely review with your legal counsel if you fall within those exceptions. Um, but otherwise, if you're not subject to something like that, you, you still may have to follow some, some type of advance notice. So definitely a conversation I recommend having with your legal counsel. And then last but not least, if you are going to be conducting terminations, if you're going to provide any type of severance or, you know, severance pay, make sure you get uh, a release for that. Okay, excellent. Hey, Thank you, Jamie. Hey, Allison, can I, Allison, can I just have one quick comment? Absolutely. Uh, I just want to make sure, so, so any of the strategies that, that we've laid out to help with financials um, in the short term, you know, from furloughs, et cetera. Just, I just want to make the point that, and I think this goes without saying, but I just wanted to be clear on it. I mean, the carriers do assume if you're going to continue benefits in those situations, that you are still paying the premiums to them. So I just want to make sure that's clear. So as you're thinking about your financial um, assessment that, um, that Jamie talked about, make sure that you're factoring in ongoing, you know, premiums and, and healthcare costs to continue those benefits for those people that may not be, you know, working, but they're still considered actively at work and uh, eligible for benefits. So I do want to just pause here and say we are getting many questions in the Q&A, which is excellent. And we've got folks that are trying to respond to those as they come in. Um, we're going to be also adding some of those questions on at the end of this session, but I am seeing a couple come in that are really similar here, which is around, um, you know, are employers allowed to ask employees if they have COVID-19 or are experiencing symptoms, and then what policies might they put in place, which is also really similar to a question about, can we test employees for fever 
before or during work. Um, Jamie, do you want to tackle that? Sure. So um, these are things that would be covered under the Americans with Disabilities Act or the ADA. And basically, the ADA says that employers are not permitted to conduct medical exams, which taking somebody's temperature and doing things like that would be considered a medical exam. Um, however, there's an exception if it is uh, job related and consistent with a business necessity or if there is a reasonable belief that the employee poses a direct threat to the health and safety of either themselves or others. Um, now, I know that's, you might think, oh, that sounds pretty significant. Well, in reality, I think it is. And I don't think that there is a uh, one answer fits all in those scenarios. I think if you are in the healthcare industry um, and you are providing healthcare services to patients and people are coming in to your office for healthcare, um, that may be an easier argument to say that you fall under the exception. Um, for other businesses, it may not be. Um, that is something that I definitely recommend that you review with your legal counsel before you start requiring people to advise uh, on their medical conditions or uh, asking them for their to, to be able to take their temperature. Because again, um, you know, both under the federal, at the federal level and the state level, uh, employers are not permitted to discriminate based on disability uh, or medical condition and things like that. So you have to be very careful in those particular instances, and it may depend on, uh, you know, what industry you're in or what business you're conducting. Okay, excellent. And and related to that, two points I'd like to make. One is that um, all of the Q&A as a result of this conversation will be made available on the website uh, in a, a very dynamic and rapidly updated Q&A. So you can look at that on the COVID-19 advisory hub. In addition to that, since we are getting so many questions and we do plan to take um, several minutes to answer those, uh, just starting in a few, but I did want to let people know in case they have a hard stop at 2.30, that as of close of business today at 8 p.m. EST, 5 p.m. PST, employers can also email questions directly to a new uh, COVID-19 advisory support team. So the email is COVID-19 support at onedigital.com. Again, it's COVID-19 support at onedigital.com. That information will also be available later today on the hub. But this is a group of HR benefits, compliance, and business experts um, who can provide quick advice, uh, actionable advice, in addition to that of your dedicated One Digital consultant. Um, the goal will be to return emails within three hours, okay? So definitely keep that in mind. Another question that we had uh, going back to this list is for Annette. Annette, does workers' compensation apply to employees that contract COVID-19? Um, so that's a great, great question. The question really will be, um, can they prove that that's where they got it? Was is at the workplace? So OSHA does require that it's reported. You know, if you if you find out that it that you do report it, but whether or not it will truly be considered a work comp um, claim really comes down to whether or not they can prove the origin of it and whether they contracted it at the workplace or during work hours because of who they were in contact with. I think that'll be hard. So I think documentation, documentation will be the big key there. Okay, excellent. You know, so we, um, we're gonna move now to some of the questions that are coming in to the Q&A. One of them that I'm seeing quite a bit is around can employers require for employees over the age of 65 uh, not to come into work if it's a situation in which there are still employees coming into an actual work site? And then what about part-time employees um, that have to be taken off the schedule for the next few weeks? Would they qualify? So I think two, two parts there. I'm not sure who wants to take that. Well, uh, this is Jamie. I can jump in on the first part. Um, definitely, uh, you cannot discriminate against anybody based on their age. Uh, I understand that there's some safety considerations there. You may offer 
uh, for people to be able to work remotely um, and allow them to take that opportunity. They may want to do that, um, but you have to be careful about practices that may uh, be deemed discriminatory if it's based on a protected category. Okay. Uh, anyone want to weigh in on that question around part-time employees? Can you be more specific about what the part-time portion was? Um, if I could figure out who asked this question, I would. So I think what we'll do is we'll, we'll see if we can't move on to another one. Um, let's see. So another one that we have here is what industries do we think are likely positioned for government stimulus? Uh, I'll, I mean, I'll take a stab at that, and this is largely based on just following, you know, the president and his, his conversations about the bills. I mean, certainly the ones that are most noteworthy are, you know, the airlines, uh, the travel industry, you know, they've probably been hit the hardest right out of the gate just due to, um, you know, the lack of commuting. Um, so I'd say those two for sure. And then the other, the other one that I'm hearing a lot more about is, is not necessarily a specific industry, but I think the, the small group or small business owner. Um, there's been a lot of conversation recently about, you know, how do we help stimulate small business owners? And again, I, I can speak to Connecticut where I am. There's already been a state passed. Um, um, I don't know if it's a bill or not, but there's an opportunity for small businesses to take advantage of a loan program. It's a close to 0% loan program to help with some stimulation. So, so I would say those, those sort of broad industries and then to, uh, or those two specific industries and to a broader extent, small business owners is what I've seen. Uh, I don't know if anyone else has other comments. Um, the only thing, uh, not industry specific, but I do know that, um, and there's some questions I, I know coming through uh, a lot on what this new bill ha has, but there is a section that gives tax credits to a number of businesses um, for either pay extra paid leave they're going to have to to provide or for um, extra health plan expenses they're going to incur. So there's some tax credits or payroll credits. There's all different kinds of credits that they'll provide to different employers um, through, the, through the new and upcoming bill as well. You know, so uh, Nancy, are you on the line, Nancy Saperstone? I am, yep. Can you hear me? You Yes, you shared a really interesting question around any advice for terminating employees digitally. Would, how would you like to respond to that? Yeah, so that question had come up in the group. And right. you know, I think in today's world, that unfortunately is going to have to happen. So I would say to make it as personal as you can with the person in terms of having a phone call with them or even a video chat, if that is possible, explaining you know why you're making this decision the same way you were terminate an employee normally but just you know giving it some kind of human interaction and then follow up with the digital documents but i definitely would have that you know one-to-one -one conversation with the person in the same way you would do okay and there are i would note as well on the advisory hub there's a number of templates specifically created for benefit managers and HR directors um, offering, you know, sample language uh, in, in situations like this, and there are more coming, so I would look there as well. Yep. We've got several questions here around um, what should an employer do if they find out an employee tested positive for COVID-19, and what news can they share to the company to help remaining employees be safe and feel like they're safe? So uh, I'll start that one off. Um, the uh, employers, um, you know, the, there's a lot of uh, protections um, under HIPAA. So let's kind of start there first. And, and as a covered entity, the employer has a responsibility to protect health information um, if it's gleaned through the plan, et cetera. So um, there was a... Um, some guidance that came out uh, reminding um, employers or any other covered entities that under HIPAA, you can disclose some protected health information under certain circumstances, like where the public health is at, uh, 
a con- concern, right? Or to prevent serious or imminent threat to the to the health of somebody. And so it, with regard to that, I think because it's a, a national emergency or this, uh, we, we can exercise those types of things. So what does that mean though? What can you disclose? I think it's perfectly all right to say somebody you've been in contact with has had COVID-19. So you should be aware these are the things to watch for, take whatever precautions. Now, I would not suggest that they go so far as naming who that is, that that should stay protected. The minimum necessary to alert somebody is is actually fine. Um, I would say, though, that, you know, HIPAA doesn't necessarily apply always to things that are gleaned from an HR standpoint. So I don't know, Jamie, if you want to kind of talk about it from more of an ADA or FMLA, if they're learning as the employer, as somebody comes to them from an employment standpoint, um, what your thoughts are there? Right. So I think there's uh, protections um, covered for employee privacy in a lot of scenarios, certainly related to leaves. Uh, There are also additional uh, state laws, uh, state privacy laws that have come into effect as of late, like the California Consumer Protection Act. Uh, New York also has a version and things like this that require employers to maintain their employee data uh, privacy um, and to maintain it securely and all these kinds of things. So you have to be very careful what it exactly it is that you're disclosing and how you're wording that language uh, to not be able to identify them um, in any way. So any of those kinds of identifiers that may be considered personal information, um, if people are able to glean from your statement who it really applies to versus making maybe a more broad and general statement um, is certainly better. And another thing to keep in mind, so, you know, the the practical effect of that is, you know, what happens then to your business? Maybe you need to have some um, industrial cleaning happen in your workspace. Um, We've seen in the news, plenty of employers actually shut down certain, you know, offices or branches of their business for those locations that may have had exposure to the virus. So this is definitely a very fluid type situation. You're going to want to take these kinds of things into consideration, um, you know, if that happens in your instance. Jamie, thank you. Um, the questions are coming in really quickly here. So I'm going to say, here's another one that looks looks fairly important. How do you suggest obtaining some sort of documentation that someone is not able to perform their essential functions of their job? Um, this, this person asking is saying that since the CDC is re- recommending not to request doctor certifications, how might we respond to that? Well, this is kind of a tough thing, I will say. So one of the things that came out in the, um, for example, in the Orange County order that came out yesterday is that they are basically, they told employers in Orange County that um, they cannot request doctor's notes in order to take leave um, if it's for a medical reason. Um, now, that obviously poses a lot of problems, um, but I suspect that we're going to be seeing that, you know, sort of more and more. Um, you know, and, and all of these things are really um, sort of different, right? There's a difference of being able to go out on leave if somebody says they're ill, you know, I have fever and chills and whatever. I mean, best practice, obviously, would be to let them, you know, take that time. Uh, the, the flip side on that is more so if you um, want them to return to work or if they say, oh, I'm fine now and whatever, um, you know, do you need to obtain a fitness for duty certification or a certification to return to work? That is something that would come from their health care provider. Um, and, you know, that's, that would be the discussion there. Okay. It's just amazing how quickly all of this is changing. So here's here's a question from somebody um, in more of a small business situation. Annette, what do you think the new bill is going to look like in particular for smaller employers, let's say under 50 employees? Um, it, it depends. Um, there's a couple of different, of course it depends. It's always the answer, right? Um, uh, on the... It, 
FMLA, so the expansion of the Family Medical Leave Act, will require um, all employers under 500 to to extend, um, you know, the FMLA protections to their employees. So small employers who haven't had to deal with that because they don't have 50 or more today have not had to worry about that. So, and it'll it'll require that. Um, employees that work 30 days or more for any particular um, employer can request that leave. And um, they would then stay on the plan for the entire period of that, that they can have the family medical leave. Um, they would stay on your plan. You can still charge them their premium contribution, whatever that is, but you cannot... Um, you cannot end their benefits, and so you don't have that luxury. Now, on the flip side uh, of that, um, the emergency paid sick leave part of this, um, so a new paid sick leave that is required for, in, in the case of an emergency like this one, that um, applies same to those employers with 500 or fewer, um, or fewer than 500, I should say, um, that that would happen. So then, um, I on on the other side, there is some some help on the funds for that. So that's where those tax credits come into play. So I would say don't panic at this moment. While I think that there's a couple pieces that are good about the new bill in that one, it starts where we should in taking care of everybody and two, then helping people financially to pay for that. And so that's what this appropriation of cash is meant to do is to free up the cash to help subsidize employers um, as they're helping these employees. So, yeah. Okay. Jamie, we have a question, and this is, uh, this is actually happening um, more than, than I thought it might, but, you know, for organizations that have new employees who are starting right now or in the next couple of days because they were offered a position um, and they're scheduled to start, can you reschedule their start date? We have questions about that. And um, how is the employer bound um, to that agreement given what's currently going on? So that is going to be, I think, dependent more so on uh, the laws in your particular state of operation. So, you know, in terms of what is considered an agreement and things like that, you know, an agreement for employment. Um, so it is possible to delay that start. Um, you know, that would be a conversation. You know, obviously, if you're having a, um, a slowdown or layoffs or things like that, maybe it's, you know, generally having to turn them down um, for that reason. Um, but, you know, it will, be t it will depend on what you offered, if there were any contingencies in the offer, hopefully people are using written offers um, to lay out, you know, the uh, limitations of the offer and things like that. Um, this may be, uh, you know, something to consider there. Um, and then, again, just, just having that conversation, seeing, you know, what other options may be available um, if you have to delay because you're putting everybody on remote work and you need time to be able to get their, uh, the infrastructure for the new hire up and running. Uh, you know, this, again, it kind of becomes a conversation on um, what that's going to look like. Okay. Thank you. We have some questions here back to the paid sick leave information, Annette, that you were talking about. So is the paid sick leave only for those who have been diagnosed and or confirmed? And then what about presumptive cases? Yeah, so the emergency paid sick leave part of this bill, so it would start 15 days after the date of enactment, and it only would only extend through the end of this calendar year, so through December 30th of 2020. So it affects private you know, employers with fewer than 500 or um, any public or that are have one employer more. It's kind of an interesting way that they do that. But um, coming back to it, um, you can get the, the paid sick leave for, to kind of break it into two categories, if you will. So the first category are 
people who um, either are quarantined or in isolation due to the federal, state, or local government saying so, right? So they're they're um, putting you in isolation or quarantine, or you have an advice advice by a healthcare professional um, to self quarantine due to either due to your concerns and they think maybe you have it, whether or not you've been tested, or three, um, the employee is you know that person's experiencing symptoms and they're going to try to get get tested so that would be the first category leaves allowed for that the second um, category category two would include anybody who's got to take care of um, somebody who has been been advised to be quarantined right so a healthcare professional told somebody else but you're the caregiver for that person um, or you need to care for a child because of a, you know, an elementary or high school or whose school is closed um, and or their daycare is unavailable. That is also allowed in there. And then um, there's one more. Um, any. Oh, they did. They did expand it for any any other um, substantially similar type can conditions so not just covid but if hhs comes out and says hey there's another virus too so they've made it so that they can they can expand it for that okay thank you uh here's another one i, I have an employee who is uncomfortable coming to work even though um, it's the type of situation where they're needed at work um, what does the employer do at that point how do they manage that situation well, I guess, you know, again, it's going to, everything's going to be need to be addressed on a case by case basis. Um, for in that particular situation, you know, do you have the option to allow them to work remotely? Um, that's obviously your, your number one go-to. If you don't have that option, um, what are other accommodations you can make in the workplace in terms of ensuring that additional sanitation is taking place, you're engaging in social distancing, um, you know, are there other things that you can do to assist in that type of um, situation? You know, if you don't have any of those um, things available to you in terms of, you know, being able to be remote or, or have these other kinds of accommodations in place, uh, you know, you definitely should review the situation with your legal counsel before you terminate somebody. Um, to make sure that uh, there's, you're aware of any potential exposure if you do decide to go that route. Okay. This one might be good for you, George, because um, we've talked about this a little bit in some of the strategy sessions we're having. For companies closing entirely for some period of time, either due to mandated closures, like in the instances of restaurants, or due to voluntary closures, you lack of customers, is there a way to preserve the group employee benefits? And if there is no employer contribution to the benefit plans and no active employees um, enrolled, what would your guidance be? Well, generally speaking, it's all about, you know, follow, follow the money. So um, the insurance requires a premium payable to the insurance carrier to the extent that the employer um, and, and or the employees are not paying for the premium, generally speaking, those plans are going to be terminated probably within a certain period of time. Each policy is a little bit different. Sometimes it's a 30 day, um, you know, grace period. Sometimes it's a 60 day grace period. So certainly um, once the grace period is exhausted and, and the, the, the company hasn't paid for premiums, most likely it will be terminated. Yeah, I would also suggest that if there's no employer-employee relationship, then you won't have a group plan anymore. And so um, that would definitely end. There would be no continuation because continuation only applies it to equate somebody who just left with all the active employees and what they get. And if there are no active employees, there's no continuation either. So I think that those that's kind of just a, something I would add there as well. And then that, that forces people to probably to the exchange or to the individual marketplace who are also looking at, at um, creating special enrollment periods because that's a big thing. There's only one time to get in the individual market typically unless you qualify for a special enrollment period. And so they are opening up the special enrollment periods um, to make sure that people who are displaced due to this particularly will have, have the opportunity to jump into the individual marketplace. 
questions around, you know, we know we have a lot of employees who are now having to manage childcare at home because daycare or school options are closed. Um, how do you recommend kind of helping them to manage both work and family life balance? I mean, you know, working from home, obviously giving them the opportunity to do that is one, but um, sometimes those situations can be really challenging. Can they apply for family medical leave? So, oh, go ahead, Annette. Did you? I was just gonna say. I was just gonna say. Once the bill passes, they can. Right. Okay. <laughs> so stay tuned. Yeah. Yeah. So under the the current um, FMLA rules, uh, no, unless it's within the first year of birth or adoption to care for a child, that may be an option. If it's if that applies to their situation, but just for general daycare options, no. One thing that I would say is an actionable item is for employers to look at scheduling, right? If you have the option for people to not have to work a standard nine to five schedule, maybe there are flex schedules that you can implement that would help them manage that care period uh, with you know, the spouse or um, family member or friend who may be assisting them where maybe they work early morning hours and are able to spend um, you know, the morning and lunch with their kids and maybe they log back in uh, later in the afternoon or evening to try to manage that process. That's a great, that's a great example of some guidance that we can give. What about guidance around, we did talk in that a little bit earlier about HIPAA um, as it relates mm -hmm. to notifying um, the organization, you know, if there's somebody that has contracted it, but how how might HIPAA guidance change as a result of this kind of new world that we're in? Um, you know, in particular, you know, we've got questions about, you know, can can people ask their staff to let us know if if they've contracted it, right? Like what is the employee's kind of obligation to tell the employer? Um, and then as it relates to HIPAA. I think they can add, they can, you know, have, I, I would recommend they just have conversations with their employees about, I mean, it's not like this is a big secret and nobody knows what's going on and that, you know, we're here to support each other and that it's, it, it, it's not bad. If you have it, you have it. But in, in deference to all the people and the consideration to all the people that you work with, it's, it's important for us to know and them to understand early if they're exposed, especially if they're, uh, they have all the vulnerability to that the particular virus and so if you if you do find out you have it please don't hesitate to step forward we'll we'll keep confidential who you are but we want to let people know they've been exposed so that they can get treatment as early as possible and I think you can ask people to do that um, what you don't want to do is to broadcast who you find out who has it those types of things but I think uh, you know the emphasis on, on keeping people safe and getting people to treatment as early as possible. Okay. Jamie, it looks like there's been some confusion about the information we shared around the 60 days for furloughs. Can you just repeat that? Sure. So what I was referring to, I think maybe what, in terms of where the 60 days came from, it's in with, with respect to the WARN Act. And basically, if you are, uh, if you have a certain number of employees, like say you have 100 or more, which is what the Federal Warrant Act applies to. State Warrant Acts may apply if you have fewer employees, like California's 75 employees and things like that. But if you plan to let um, you know 50 or more people go in a reduction in force or a layoff, um, or sometimes even uh, furloughs may apply, there's been some case law on that, that uh, the Warrant Act could apply to furloughs. Um, where you are required to provide those employees with 60 days advance notice that you will be uh, conducting that layoff, reduction in force, or furlough. Um, so that's the notice piece. And that's, to, you know, in a normal situation, that's to allow people time to maybe search for another job, understand that it's coming, um, and try to put them in a better financial position. Now, obviously, you know, these are certainly different times. Um, and so 
there, um, like I said before, there may be exceptions that fall under um, the different Warren Acts to how much notice you have to give. But uh, in a standard way, if, if you're not under some um, state or local order to close or something like that, um, you, that is something that you would have to take into consideration in your planning and providing that advance notice that that is something that could be happening. Now, obviously, if you want to take advantage of any of those exceptions to that 60-day timing, definitely review that with your legal counsel who can advise you if that applies. Okay, thank you. I'm trying to be mindful of our time here, but there are a couple more that I think we could handle relatively quickly. Um, if you have a positive case with an employee, um, are you required to inform OSHA uh, and the State Department of Health? And is there an email that we're aware of for OSHA to send that information to? I have no, I don't know what the OSHA requirements are. Jamie, do you? I, I'm assuming that the answer is yes, but. Well, I guess, um, you know, I'm not sure. That may be something we'd have to check back in on. Typically, uh, OSHA requirements are for injuries that occur um, at work or while working. Um, and since it's tough to say whether or not somebody obtained that illness through work yeah. activities, it's not really clear that it would require an OSHA um, notification. Yeah. I will say that OSHA has published guidance on how the, their re regulations apply to the coronavirus. Um, so I would definitely check that out to see if there's additional guidance there. No. Can you explain, I think there's some uh, confusion also when we're referring to the WARN Act. Are we talking about the WARN Act or the WARN, W-A-R-N Act? W-A-R-N. Right, mm -hmm. not WARN, okay, great. Um, let's see. So we've got three minutes here and the questions are starting to slow down, I believe, just because we're coming up to the hour. Um, what I'd like to do at this point, because we do have all of those questions and we, and we do know where they're coming from and how to respond to them. Um, and some of them, I think, are because people are coming in, have come in a little bit late. So some of it we have already covered. If you have come in late, and you're asking questions around the difference between layoff, furlough, how you can notify, uh, should you be notifying employees, you know, if you have a case, um, different aspects of uh, family medical leave, sick leave, those are things that we've covered quite a bit already. And again, this will be available um, as a replay directly from the website and anybody who registered will get the recording. Also, if you came in late, I just want to say again that at close of business today, we will have a new email resource available. You can email your question to COVID19support at onedigital.com. Again, that's COVID19support at onedigital.com. And we have a team of experts standing by to answer your questions. And we are aiming for a response time of three hours. So I'm going to go ahead and start to wrap up here. I do want to thank Annette, Jamie, George, Nancy, and Carrie so much for your time with us today. And thank you all to our attendees for joining us. We understand that it is an incredibly taxing time for employers. We hope we've been able to provide some actionable advice you can put to work today. If you need help now and you haven't been able to speak with your local One Digital Advisor, please remember to check back to the hub. Um, our national advisory team experts are updating the content there every day. For example, um, now live on the hub are quick videos specific to guidance for remote workforces, uh, for when remote work is not an option, managing layoffs and preventive actions that employees can take. So those videos are getting uploaded on a regular basis, check back often. Since the situation does change minute by minute and you, so do your challenges, um, you can feel free to join us twice a week um, for the near future uh, to continue these conversations. So this Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern time, we will host another advisory session and we will base the content on that session on the questions that are coming in um, 
after this webinar. Um, we then will the following week be hosting these on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. And all of that information will be available on the Hub. In fact, Friday's session is already um, open for registration. And that link is live on the Hub. What I'd like to just say here is, you know, stay well, stay connected with your family, your friends, and your coworkers. Um, use that email, reach out to your One Digital Advisor, and maybe we'll see you on Friday at 2 p.m. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to this episode of One Digital's COVID-19 Employer Advisory Podcast. There's never been a time more than now during which our commitment to standing as one with our customers and providing peace of mind is more important. We are committed to providing the guidance you need to make complex decisions even in the most challenging times. For additional resources, thought leadership, or for the latest employer information related to the COVID-19 pandemic, please visit onedigital.com forward slash coronavirus. Thank you.